Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need when you need it with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Yeah, a little bit of a Chumbawamba attitude. Like, mm-hmm. I'll just do another startup tr- if this doesn't work. truly but... started to play in my head before you even said it. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah. That's how I know we're uh, a pair. everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Aloha. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the OS of an organization in its first year. It should be spicy. But before (laughs) we unpack that, we will do a check-in round. That's right. We begin every episode with a check-in so we can get here now. And the check-in for today is... And I'm actually genuinely curious to hear your answer to this because I don't know that I know it, which is unusual on this show. When you're starting or learning something new that you want to get good at or like push through the, you know, beginner space, how do you get yourself to stick with it versus kind of quitting when it gets rough? Hmm, that's a good question. So part of me says I don't. And... (laughs) And it's in, it's intentional. So I used to, I would say, when I wanted to be good at something or learn something new, well, I guess that's that's very telling what I just said. When I wanted mm. to learn something new, I automatically wanted to be good at it because I'm a right. perfectionist and I can't just do anything for fun. And so what I've learned in like the last 10 years, probably, as I've become a more self-aware and evolved human, is that I have that tendency. Mm. And so... I am trying to, when I learn something new, hold it a little bit more lightly. And when I get to a point of frustration with myself or with the content, take a break and take a Mm. step away from it and trust that like, if it's something I care about, I will come back to it. Mm. And what I find is that for the most part, when I do come back to it, a bunch of stuff has sort of sunk in and integrated and I'm more able to like pick it back up. So I used to be in the, in the, mindset that like if I left it for three days I would forget everything I learned Mm. and now I'm like no don't muscle through it because that and more will have like sort of made its way through the machine by the time you go back to it if you want to learn it set it free yeah exactly set it free (laughs) yeah what about you I think I have two strategies what you just said is more evolved and wise than my two strategies because I think there is like a similar pattern with me about needing to be good at everything I do or not do it. But for me, the two strategies that seem to work in terms of just like long term through the learning curve, one is I I do best when I don't have too many things in the air. So I actually I'm playing a game right now with a good friend of mine. And he's like, check out this game and check out this game. And I'm also doing this game and this game. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm -hmm. I can only do one at a time. Like, I, if this is my thing, this is my thing. And I'm just like in it. I'm thinking about it. That's I have to go deep. So I struggle with with like, oh, I'm learning to cook and parasail and, you know, do paper art. It's, I, I need to do them one at a time. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is I need a buddy. Mm. So this podcast is actually a really good example of this where had I started this podcast by myself, it would be over by now. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that like when it got a little chunky or challenging, there isn't anybody to play with. And it's much easier to just step away and not come back. Whereas if you have a buddy, whether it's cycling or making a podcast or playing a game or whatever, there's a little bit of social accountability and there's a little bit of camaraderie. And for me, that goes a long way. So like, yeah. That makes a big difference. That totally makes sense. And you can like draft off someone's energy on the days that you just don't have it. Which is part of learning is like some days are just like, I got to sort of grind this out. And other days feel exciting and energizing. Like for sure, if you weren't going to show up, I'd be taking a nap right now. Yeah. And the episode would be like, I'll do that tomorrow. Recording in a closet by yourself. (laughs) Shocked. 
shocked to hear that. Yeah. Okay, so today's topic, which is not unrelated to the check-in question, is how the first year of a startup can really take its OS seriously. Like, what are the first moves? What is the first year about in terms of defining, designing, refining your OS? And I (laughs) want to start by asking you, are you just being selfish as the founder of Murmur? Or is this a genuine curiosity about the world or something in between or all of the above? (laughs) Well, we're... I think we're pushing 18 months on the Murmur adventure, and I definitely am reflective, so that may show up here. But for me, this came more from a desire to talk to and speak with a lot of the people that I've been engaging with on Twitter lately and in Discord, where they're just in a young project. Yeah. And and they're they're trying to sweat this stuff, but there's a lot of competing tensions and energies going on in a year one business or organization. And so I thought it would be fun, honestly, just to pick your brain about it. Like what matters, what doesn't matter and why? And how do you kind of set the pace so that when you exit that first year, the house isn't going to fall down in year four culturally, but you also haven't spent the whole time staring at your belly button. Right. Right. That makes sense. (laughs) It's so hard. I know. I do think it's really hard. And oh my God. I mean, having been in a couple of things when they were very young, I think about like time that we spent on things that were so fucking stupid. <laughs> there's a lot of like, there's a lot know, of wandering and waste. A lot of wandering. And then other things like, you know, not having a proper expense system set up in a consulting business that resulted in an audit and like six months of total Ooh. chaos. So it's just like, yeah. What what is actually fundamental and what right. what parades is being fundamental but could be saved for a later day. And so much of the emergent stuff, it doesn't seem significant in the moment, but later you look back. So I've been kind of in this like <laughs> yeah, you do. year six, year seven, year eight part of the motion several times. Mm. And it's almost like, you know, in your yard, you like plant that vine And then you don't really pay attention. And then one year you're like, holy shit, the whole side of the house, like that brick is all going to come down. Yeah. Because it's just gone. I feel that way often when I look at the culture where it's like, hmm, that little habit that I or we had in year one is now like a full on teenager. Mm. And it's just storming around culturally, you know, making havoc. And, And it just, I don't know, it's a really rough mirror, frankly, to like look at an org several years in and just see the little things about you and the early team that have stuck around and like laid roots. Now I feel like I need to know what those things are. <laughs> I mean, the, I think like what like, comes to mind, clearly yeah. there's something sort of, well, I'll give around. you, I'll give you a really classic example that, that will be familiar to all, but, but certainly to you, which is like the Reddy's customer centricity. Mm-hmm. So for a long, long time, especially in the early days, the, the ethic, like the work ethic and the focus was on, the customer, because mm-hmm. in year one, it's like you got to survive, right? So you're thinking about customer service and delivery and the quality of delivery and the attentiveness and the energy going out the door more than you're thinking about like making your bed. Mm-hmm. And what I have found is that, and I think we've done a lot to to judo this in the, in recent years, but it's really easy for the shoemaker's kids to have no shoes in that scenario mm-hmm. where we always put that first. And mm-hmm. I think even at the expense of our own like breaks and pause and renewal and at the expense of our own OS, there there is a dedication baked into the culture that like we're going to deliver great work mm-hmm. and we're going to be available when they need us to be. Available. So that's one echo. But there well, are And others. what's funny about this not to take us off topic, but it's been very much on my mind recently because the ready is in such a abundant place as an example that those things that in the early days served really well to create a flywheel that resulted in abundance mm-hmm. now will fuck you up. Yeah, exactly. So like now, you know, I'm having a conversation once a week where someone at the ready is like the client isn't is wobbly or they're not you know, fulfilling their commitments to the work Mm -hmm. or whatever. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. fire him, 
fire them all. There's right. so many clients. There's right. good work out there. We're very fortunate that we can like work with the best. Don't sweat Tell it. them if they don't want to show up that they don't have to. Then it's fine. We'll go do something <laughs> and else. And you won't either. Yeah. And you won't either. <laughs> like we'll all go home and we'll all go do something that we want to really be doing. But right. that like genetic material that you're talking about is so deep so in, resistant in to all that. of us that everybody's like, I could <gasps> never. And I'm like, no, you. Re- I promise you could. Like I promise you could. And on Monday, there are two projects waiting for you. Right. If you're ready with people who are like, Give me it. So to your point about like, you know, the vine taking down the house, if you don't sort of watch those things and start to shift, they can like that's an instance where I would say it doesn't really serve anyone. Like it doesn't serve the customer who's not doing what they should be doing. It doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve the OS. Like it doesn't serve anything. And so, yeah, I think it's a good provocation about the early material and sort of mindsets that you need to create abundance and to create choice not ultimately being the thing that rules choice the prima materia i it's funny you say that because one of the thought exercises that we have done a couple times in murmur's early history that i find both profound and slightly unsettling is just to say like if you took what we have right now and and it was a hundred people behaving like this or a hundred people acting like this or thinking like this if it was, if you took these traits and you turned them up to 200%, how would you feel about that? Mm-hmm. And usually just that thought exercise of like imagining that what we're doing as 10 people happening at 100 or this pattern that we have being like an even bigger pattern yeah. is enough to kind of scare you straight. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. It's so yeah. interesting. So, so to that end of trying to, you know, not get it right at the beginning, but make smart moves at the beginning. Let's talk about what to start with. So when we're starting companies, we don't want to spend too much time looking internally because we have to find product market fit. We have to pay the bills. We have to be able to hire people. We have to do all this stuff. And yet, you'll be totally fucked if you have a broken OS from the beginning and you'll never get those other things. So right. what's your first, first move? Well, I think... Even if it's not going to be lasting, I think defining some objective purpose, directionality, vision, et cetera, is really useful, Um, both for gathering the right moths to the flame and for decisioning and all the things we've talked about in previous episodes around purpose and, and mission. So I do think having something clarified there is pretty important. And, and to that end, maybe very quickly following that, like, what sorts of people, what sorts of values, principles, practices, behaviors, beliefs do you need to pursue that, at least at a hypothesis level? It has been really helpful to have a sense of who who the who is mm. so that you don't end up in a scenario where the culture is defined by the early seedlings that were not selected. So it's just mm. kind of like a garden of whatever would grow. And we've talked before on the show about the tension between like, diversity and inclusion and coherence. Yeah. So I, I want to acknowledge that. But yeah, to me, the first two moves are like, where are we going? And generally speaking, who do we want to ride on the bus with? Mm-hmm. And then see what starts to stretch from there. Mm-hmm. What would you add or change about that? In both of my last two experiences and in two different startups that I did coaching work with, I wish there had been more conversation and clarity about what we weren't going to (laughs) do. Like not behaviorally, but like in terms of the product or the service, what are the things that for now, because we're really going to test an experiment, we're not going to fuck with. Mm -hmm. I think early days, it can be so easy to be like, we're going to do a service. No, we're going to do an app. No, we're going to use this kind of customer. And like, and then, and then to your point about seedlings, when those choices aren't made for real, real, and we sort of like propagate a bunch of stuff at once to sort of see what's working. First of all, we end up creating probably more overhead than we can really service because we're just doing too much with finite resources. Secondly, we're not really like going hard on one hypothesis to test. That's like, we're going to make an app that does this kind of tracking and we're going to sell it to transit (laughs) authorities. And that's all we're going to do for as long as this round of funding lasts. Mm -hmm. And then 
if six months in, it's like, oh, this is not looking good. We're going to find a next hypothesis to test. I just think... I just think it's really easy when you feel a little bit in, in scarcity and a little bit in urgency, which if you're mm-hmm. venture backed, you always do to be <laughs> like, let's just like, let's just do all the things and see wow. what pops. Yeah. And I think being really clear on the hypothesis you're trying to test and specifically what you're not going to do. And I'll give you a really easy example. Like I wish that at the ready earlier on, we had been like, we are not coaches. Right. Cause we like, circled that for, for longer than we needed yeah. to. Right. And it's like, that's a great industry. I love coaching. I have one. I am one. Right. It's grand. And also. <laughs> that's not what we do. It's not what we do. It's a skill set many people have. It's a useful skill set in what we do. And I wish we had been clearer earlier in just being like, that's not our core business. So that's not what we're going to sell. Yes. Even if people ask for it, because I when I think about the cycles and the noise and the conversations and the interpersonal tension, frankly, that not clarifying we were not going to do that caused. I'm like, that wasn't Such really necessary. Yeah, that was like a waste of cycles. I would double down on this, actually, because I think there's a really interesting counterintuitive strategy hiding in your recommendation, which is maybe in the first year the anti-patterns matter more than the patterns. Mm. Maybe like the, maybe there's an experiment to be had in OS design of just saying, yes, if you are clear on a purpose or a thing you're going to test, of course, that's good. Uh, that's great. That's you great. Know, hygiene for PMF. But also just generally speaking, like what if we just did more writing down of what we don't want to be and left the space then for emergence around the things that we might be and that we yeah. could be? Yeah. Um, sort of like, yeah, I think there's something unique about that approach that I haven't really seen done. No, I haven't either. But it brought up two images in my brain that were helpful when you do like purpose work in the early days or strategy work in the early days. It feels like sort of a marker on the horizon. Yes. And you like start marching toward it. But there's like all this stuff <laughs> in your peripheral vision just being like, no, no, me. Look at me. <laughs> Attend to me. Like, <laughs> come over here. And I, and, and I feel like the antithesis of that would be like, okay, everything on the sides of this path is a cliff to fall off. So what is this path? Let's just keep walking yeah. this path, which I do think is an interesting reframing. Totally. Yeah. Being like, this is the loose hypothesis of where we're headed. But more important is like, what is the darkness on either side of this road? Yeah. Because you don't want Meerkat Manor. I think the the idea applies to so many avenues where you wouldn't normally apply it to. Because certainly in terms of like the core pursuit and the and the projects or the focus. But I also think in terms of hiring, it's super interesting. Totally. To say like, who do we not want? Okay, no assholes. Mm-hmm. Know this, know that. We don't want to have everybody that, you know, looks and talks and thinks the same. Mm-hmm. Like all the things that you are looking, we don't want experts because we're trying to reinvent the category, whatever it is. But yeah. these are all the no's. And then it leaves room for all these unusual yeses. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, I think that is cool. So I think mm. that's a interesting starting place is like loose purpose, strong filters. Right. Strong anti-patterns. I think that's a cool way of thinking about that. Yeah. I'm sort of um, mad at you because you're making me want to start something just to test that. No, no more. No more things right now. I know. I know. That's why I'm mad. <laughs> I'm mad because I'm in the dynamic tension. What else? What else is early? So this is one that I uh, that I was briefly mentioning to you before the show, which is I think role work is such a conundrum in the early <sighs> days because on the one hand I mean certainly if you're doing traditional job description based stuff like you can just turn this off that's this is not for you but if you're gonna play a role mix game and have people build roles and hold multiple roles and evolve their role mix over time the question in the early days is how do you balance this this pull between wanting to sort of let everyone wear many hats and let things emerge and everybody jumps on every issue and you have this fluidity and this startup energy mm-hmm. and the clarity of like who updates the Twitter, who sends the employment agreements, who signs the contracts, just the basic blocking and tackling operational clarity. Yeah. And I've always found that tension to be really hard to resolve and hard to get other people excited about resolving. Yeah. People do not want to do that work. 
I know. And it's like, you know, it comes in some cases, I think it comes back to the very recent discovery that I've made about how not everyone cares as much about work design as I do, which oh, shit. has been earth shattering and very disappointing. And also, it's true. <laughs> and also, it's something that we're normally, it's such a weird, such a weird paradigm. I hate that word, but I just, it yeah, came to my mind. It's such Business a weird school. paradigm. I know I'll be I'll be getting my MBA next year. I'm sorry, I'm quitting. Because on the one hand, people who are coming from I don't even want to say traditional systems, people who are coming from systems where someone hired them into a job right. are used to having a bullshit job description yes. handed to them that they like never fucking look at again. Right. So on the one hand, they're used to something that is both inaccurate, but the effort is made by someone else. Right. And then they get to do the emergent thing. And then, yeah, exactly. And then they get to do the emergent thing. But generally, they're not asked to do the work of right. thinking critically about then parsing the emergent thing and writing that shit down. Right. And so on the one hand, there's the like flip around that, which is people are just used to outsourcing that and having it done poorly. And that's yeah. a shift. Two is people honestly just feeling like that's part of their job. Yep. Because I... I get the pushback at clients, but I also get the pushback at the ready where people are like, sure. I don't want to do this. And I'm like, right. welcome to self-management. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, do you want me to do it for you? Because I will. Yeah. And you will not like the outcome is what right. I can guarantee you. And so so I think that's part of it, which then requires having the time, having mm -hmm. the authority, having the skill set to know how to do that work, which is not an easy ask. But if it's not done, if there is not real role work done, it just shows like yeah. it just shows in the things that get neglected. It, it shows feels. in the quality of work. You just know that it's fucking kindergarten soccer. Yep. And like, I, I see it all over the place. I see it in startups of three people and I see it in a fortune 50 company that I'm working mm -hmm. in. And I'm mm -hmm. just like, nobody is clear really <laughs> on who, who has the pen on this, who has Who's the, the decision on this. Who's really on the hook for this and who's sweating it? Yeah. That just sucks. And so the fact that it sucks and it really is a big deal and people are also like, I don't want to, mm -hmm. is just really difficult. So I've been struggling with this, both with clients, with you, with the ready to a certain extent, and also with Murmur. And one of the ideas that I've come to is this notion of atomic agreements, and thinking about how do you make things smaller and then assemble them later to be bigger or build on them later to be more expansive and and just lower the barrier to entry essentially to get something going. Mm -hmm. And so one of the experiments that I want to try is to do some initial like founding role work where it is the name of the role, the purpose of the role and the name of the person that fills it. And mm -hmm. that's it. And mm -hmm. everybody just does that week one. And it's yep. like week one, we have purposes, we have names, we have people that fill them. And then give it a beat and then look at like, okay, now as tensions come up about who's on first, we can find an existing asset, this atomic agreement about social media marketing or whatever it is. And we can be like, hmm, this, this should attach to that. Yeah. And then you just attach that thing, that responsibility, that decision, right, that whatever it is. But making these things a lot more like Build-A-Bear than they currently are, because there's an intimidation factor, I think, for the average non-wonky person like you or me, mm -hmm. who's just like, I got to write five whole paragraphs about this thing and then do that again for three other roles. That's a hard pass. Like, I'm just going to yeah. go get through my inbox. Uh, whereas if it was like, all I want you to do is write down five sentences. And then once a week, we're going to add a sentence to each of these things when it like pops off. Maybe that's better. So I don't have any data to prove that, but that's like the new experiment. I think it's cool. I think it's I think it's a really <laughs> smart experiment. Also, because once you're holding five roles and it's just the gestalt of your day is that stuff, for a lot of people then like disaggregating those and describing them feels like a much bigger hill to climb. Right. It's like, it's almost one of the situations where like, you don't want to make the mess first. Right. Because then pulling it apart. I mean, look at how much work it took for you and I to pull our rules apart. 
And are there like two people who are more qualified to do that work? Like maybe on no. earth? I don't know if there so are. So nasty though. Yeah, you're right. So nasty. It took us a lot of time. And even so, once we finished and we're like, doop, doop, all done. You were like, did we forget this one? And I was like, we sure yep. did. Yep. <laughs> Oopsters. So yeah. for a, like for anyone who has not dedicated their life to this work, right. to just be asked to be like dropped in the soup of their day and make sense yeah. of it and then make it super crisp and like using action words, but only three bullets. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> and also, I think that a one sentence purpose thing is just also an interesting lever because it's right. like if my role as growth steward is just a healthy OS for the growth circle, yeah. then when like an asset doesn't get made and someone's like, yo, what the fuck? I can be like, I think we have a healthy OS without that. So maybe that's a different <laughs> role. And I think that's an interesting conversation to be able to have. Right. You know, we're growing. The we're looking good. So like, maybe that's oh, not that's, something that's that was my thing to worry well, about. Well, and that's sort of my thought with these atomic agreements is that someone then is holding up a thing to you, like a responsibility in its, in its isolation yeah, and to, like, being like, it. where does this go? And they're like pushing it at you and you're like, mm, I'm going to push that back at you. And then there's, then you have an interesting, different sort of a conversation than looking at like 20 bullet points together across two different roles trying to figure out where everything goes. It's like, no, this emerged. Here it is. Where does it belong? Or can we let it go mm -hmm. to, to the point of your check-in? And and then go from there. So I do, yeah, I'm, I like I'm excited to play with it. And Try we're actually, actually going to be toying with, uh, in like a experimental way, introducing some of that thinking into the product as well. Mm. So that, that you could like do more atomic agreements potentially in the future. Oh, I think that'll be really cool. Yeah. Also, for... Startups that are growing, I know you. I know how much time I know how much time you put into like drawing an org chart, even when you only have five people, and like fiddling with a lot of dumb shit that doesn't matter. So I'm just going to challenge you to reallocate that time right. to what really are the roles. What is a one sentence purpose of each of those roles? And like, don't write a job description for a CMO. Right. It doesn't mean anything. You're not going to use it. You're probably not going to hire the person that the recruiter finds for you anyway, if we're being honest. You're going to hire the guy from your last company. So <laughs> just knock that shit off. And I really like this idea instead. It's like reinvest the time that you're used to spending on putting your org chart in a PowerPoint deck and do this. I love that you brought up vanity org design and like vanity metrics because it is a real distraction. It really is a distraction. And I understand why people do it, but... It feels so good to live great. in the future instead of the present and just imagine all the ways you're going to, you know, just be imagine. such a big deal. And then it's like, oh, now you're back to you haven't actually done anything. Yeah. It's so fun to imagine when you have all those boxes drawn and you're like, when we're all of this, it's really going to hum. And it's like, oh, but it's still just you and me <laughs> and half a million dollars and a year of runway to figure yeah, out exactly. everything. Yeah. <laughs> It's like that scene in So I Married an Axe Murderer where she offers a delicious breakfast and all they had was Apple Jacks. I don't think I ever saw that movie. Oh, my God. It's so funny. Yeah, He wakes up and this woman is like, we have, you know, French toast and bacon and eggs and what would you like? And he says, and then she's like, actually, I'm sorry, we didn't have any of that other stuff. All we have is Apple Jacks. I really like Apple Jacks. <laughs> That's um, what he said. They're really good. But yeah, I think I'm taking a look at those vanity metrics and just if you're small, if you're under, I'm going to say fewer than 10 people. Yeah. You don't need to do any structure work. Right. You only need to do role work. Because right. you don't need reporting lines. You need a clarified authority. Mm -hmm. You don't need managerial structure. You just need an advice process. And you, and you don't need teams. job descriptions. You just right. need roles. So <laughs> just do that instead. You're going you're gonna to spend the time. Just spend it more wisely. That's awesome. So let's shift later in the year. So this is about year one. You have a purpose or some directionality, you've identified some anti-patterns that you don't want in the form of anti-principles or other agreements that you might make. You've done some very light atomic role work. Mm -hmm. What else is going to come up? What's going to happen structurally over the course of that year as you go from, let's say, two to 10 people or two to 15 people and the thing starts to take on a life of its own? Where, where would your mind go next in terms of points of process or advice? The first place my mind goes is resources and mm. allocation of resources. Okay. Let's so, yeah. 
when they're, <laughs> I think e- either way the business breaks, um, you're going to get into a resourcing pickle fairly soon. So right. if things are not going well and there's scarcity, there are going to be hard decisions to make around trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And if things are going well and there's abundance, there are going to be hard decisions to make about trade-offs. <laughs> and I think that extends from everything from equity and ownership to if you have capital, how you're um, investing it, to if you have revenue, you know, where you're hiring, where you're holding back, where you're outsourcing, where you're tooling, et cetera, et cetera. Like I just see so frequently in founding teams that a lot of the static is about how we are using what we have, whatever the material is we have. And that extends too to like what people are specifically working on. It all follows. You know, one of the things that we've talked about, you know, over the years on and off is like money is ultimately more than anything else, it's energy and it's a signal because it is a, a simple and sort of blunt object. It makes things very clear to people and sometimes unintentionally. And so right. when it's like, we're right. going to invest, you know, we're going to put all our chips in on engineering. That's like a real signal to anybody who's not engineering about what you're up to and what's important. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, I think, I think that's what, that's like the next place that to me, starts to get difficult. Yeah. I am curious to hit that directly, but I also want to ask you a related question, which is about meetings and operating rhythm and how you think it connects to the resource problem. Mm. Because because one of the things that I am aware of is that in those early days, a lot of the decisions about what to do and the decisions about where to put our time and energy and our money is happening in conversation rather than any formal process. Yeah. And so those conversations are often happening in either formal or informal meetings. So I'm curious, when you think about getting resource allocation right, how much of that is about transparency? How much of that is about operating rhythm? How much of that is about explicit agreements about resource allocation? Where does your, like, what's your formula for the Happy Meal on resources? Yeah, I don't have a formula. I totally agree. There's rhythm stuff. You know, a thing that we did in my last company that I thought worked quite well was that each of this was when we were fairly small, but it it scaled actually quite well. Each of the team leads at each of our sort of quarterly, maybe quarterly meetings did something that was like a light strategy and some outcomes. We used different language. I like our language better, but it was like that. It was sort of like a, here's roughly what we're up to and here's roughly where we think we'll be. And here's what we think it will cost because of technology or resources or office space or travel or whatever the stuff was. (laughs) And then as a team, when we were young as a whole company, and then later as a team, we looked at that all together and we really horse traded publicly Mm. and very transparently. And so it, that's, that was the, that was sort of the magic. And I think why it worked really well was because it would be like, okay, you know, I really need I really need this if we're going to take on this client project. And I think that's the most important thing because the upside is this and the reputation is that and the proof of concept is this and blah, 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 blah. And I would be like, okay, well, I can take a hire out of my plan and give that to you. And also, that's what it will cost in terms of these outcomes getting pushed out a quarter. And if we're all squared with that, I have no issue with that. Right. And it just, it sort of forced a conversation of like, there are finite resources here. You know, we were not in a place of scarcity, but we were not in a place of like, you can just do whatever you want forever. And so I think (laughs) having some resourcing attached to some outcomes, not in a gross, like targety, metricsy, mercenary way, but in a real open dialogue was, was actually like quite effective. That's cool. And I think there's there are different flavors of collaborative or collective resource allocation. That sounds like one that's more negotiative and more conversation driven. Mm-hmm. There are other things we've talked about on the show that are more about 
you know, voting with your feet or with dots or with like spreading your monopoly money around getting like the wisdom of the crowd on the table against all the initiatives that are underway. I do think it is interesting. And and one of the things I vacillate on is like, how much do we talk and focus on our money? Mm. And how much do we just sort of trust into the learning loops of the organization and look at that less frequently? Mm -hmm. Because we could, I mean, at Murmur, for example, we could be running like a very explicit budget and and sort of allocation exercise. But in practice, what we're doing is we're giving spending authority to everyone up to a certain amount that feels like a small enough percentage of the total to do whatever they need to do in service of the purpose. And then we're looking together every week at our burn rate against the time horizon and asking questions like, are all the things in motion making us feel confident that this is going to work out, right? Mm -hmm. That we're like trending in the right direction. But we don't do a ton of, um, we don't do a ton of resource allocation explicitly or verbally right now, which is interesting. Mm, It's just like, yeah, like we have, most of our spend is people, which is probably true for most startups, not all. Yeah. And the people are here. And yeah. so the real question is, the, the biggest resource allocation question that we have is, should we hire another person? Mm-hmm. and Or should we not? Yeah. And that and that feels like, it's not a one-way door per se, but it's a pretty decisive thing where like, if you do it, now they work here and, and then you're, you know, you're off to the races with a higher burn and less runway. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to see if that bet pays off mm-hmm. in the time horizon of that first year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it could be yeah. like four, five, six months before it's clear if that was net positive or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. I feel like it's also it's a uniquely startup challenge where the a lot of those hires are the zero to one hire. Right. It's like in the well, if we could have another if we could have another <laughs> of this person, we sort of know what zero to one did for us right we have a so base. imagine one to three like oh my god yeah. we should it's and then and then it becomes a lot easier right because everybody can sort of coalesce around that because we have a mental model for what yep. one was but in the like do we need a brand designer <laughs> or not conversation right in the I, I don't know how do you make that decision in the absence of data yeah i I don't know is the honest answer. I think the way that we've done it historically has been where do we feel the persistence of demand in mm-hmm. the system? Like where is the drumbeat just really loud? Almost the way you make a decision about building a feature, honestly. If mm-hmm. you're really disciplined about building features, you wait until the drumbeat from users is quite strong before mm-hmm. you react. And I think same thing on roles. Because it's a bit of a one-way door, at least for that zero to one hire, it's like, how much beat are we hearing that this is needed or that this is happening? And then maybe the other piece of it is to what extent is that work if it has to happen a distraction for someone who Mm. could be, who isn't in their zone of genius, right? So Mm -hmm. like, you know, if someone is pushing paper or making decisions or clearing a backlog or talking to customers all day and that's not their jam, then there's a question of, are we getting the most out of the resources we have and would it change the dynamic to bring someone in? Mm-hmm. And you and I have experienced that, I think, firsthand at the ready several times. No. Where it's, <laughs> where it's like, I don't oh, know what you're talking about. A, a specialist. <laughs> so I, I do think that is, that's part of it. But I don't know that we have a good, robust way of thinking about this. It's been pretty gut. Yeah. That's fascinating. It makes me want to like provoke you with something, which is, um, <laughs> I feel like there's a thing in that that <sighs> oh, I'm going to regret saying this. I already feel it. But do it. I do feel like some of the best founders that I have known like really have an abundance mindset even when there isn't real abundance. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of create a feeling of like Let's just do the right thing and we'll figure it out later. And what's funny is like many of those people have been my coaching clients. And so the Mm. figuring it out later was like with me in a dark (laughs) corner while they wept and were like, should I take out a second mortgage? But like in all examples that are coming to mind, it did work out in the end. Right, right, right. And it was just that they were willing to sort of stomach it. And so I do think there's a thing in resource allocation that like so much of that is not really clear-eyed data 
driven mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. so much of it is mindset and principles work. And I don't know, I don't exactly know like how you tackle that because I haven't firsthand been in that situation. I love that insight. And and to me, it's 100% accurate, which is startup work in year one is manifestation work. Yeah. And manifestation work is highly dependent on confidence and optimism and yeah. willingness to just get punched in the face over and over again and not even sweat it. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. And I think like the people that do really well tend to have more rampant optimism, more ambition, more vision, and more willingness to fail hard if they're going to fail and then just do it again. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of a Chumbawamba attitude. Like, mm-hmm. I'll just do another startup tr- if this doesn't work. truly but... started to play in my head before you even said it. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. yeah. That's how I know we're uh, a pair. But I, I do find that to be to be the case. And I think it's it's motivational and it's manifestational because other people tune into it, mm-hmm. investors, partners, employees, customers, et cetera. If you will it into it, it's, it's field of dreams. If you build yeah. it, they will come. If you really believe it, then it does change the dynamics of what happens in a, in a pretty real way. And I think in some ways, the biggest challenge with a startup is deciding how, where to be on that line between like blow it all really fast and, and make it last forever. Yeah. And if you are funded and the goal is to do something quickly and it's not a bootstrapping situation, which I think is a little bit easier to, to pencil, there is a there's a real debate day to day of like should we double the team size and cut the runway in half? Mm-hmm. And what are the trade-offs there and what what does that do? And the reality is it's all just risk management. And so I think having collective agreement as a team or as an early team or a co-founding team about what is our posture on risk. Mm-hmm. So that you can just be clear, like we're a go for broke crowd or mm-hmm. we're a like split the difference crowd or we're a conservative crowd. And then we'll, we're willing to live out the consequences of those attitudes. Yeah. Not having clarity around the horn about that, I think, is really detrimental. And especially in startups where most of the team doesn't have transparent access to information mm-hmm. and you have a founder who's like a bet it all on red founder. Mm-hmm. That's that's a recipe for total disaster. Mm-hmm. But if everybody knows that that's what they signed up for and that's the play, then we're all just playing the game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> you know, like anything else, there's there's always a polarity, right? So it's like a lot of the founders that I've known who are the most optimistic are also total narcissists. So, like, their unwavering belief in themselves is the thing. Yeah. It doesn't always work out. Like, doesn't always pay the bills, as it turns out. Right. And so there's... There's the balancing of really still paying attention to signal with remaining optimistic. And the other thing that that comment brought up for me is like, again, having coached a few CEOs as they were fundraising or, you know, trying to onboard their first big customer or whatever, Mm -hmm. there is something about the cliff coming that really seems to like accelerate things. I mean, right. You know, there's there's nothing like a a leadership team with three months left of payroll to get the round raised. <laughs> I have heard this from so many people too. It's and like, so yeah. it's like, do you? I don't know if you want to put yourself in that situation, having just like heard that situation so many times. I am empathetic to those people because they did not enjoy that process. Like they didn't right. enjoy the feeling of that process, but at the same time it worked out. So I don't know. Yeah. And I think this is probably the central thing that I'm trying to learn and be open around right now with murmur is how do you balance authentic urgency, the creation of urgency and safety and like renewal and sustainability mm-hmm. in the culture because if you go too far to one side, you end up with toxicity. Yep. And if you go too far to the other side, you end up with this sort of unfair, lackadaisical attitude, which yeah. is like, because there is a real end in sight. And to pretend that there isn't is there nonsense. Is. Yeah. But how do you do that in a way where everybody's anxiety isn't through the roof? And what I have found is that doing this in the midst of the COVID story of the last two years has made it especially hard to do the calculus because yeah. it's like everybody's already right here. And yeah. I'm about halfway up my face right now for those listening. They're already here. And then if you add that extra element, 
it, it can be too much. So yeah. I think in, in peacetime, that was hard enough. But right now, it's really hard. And yeah. I feel like a total amateur. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone, like, I, I don't really <laughs> think there is a professional level of this that I've seen. Uh, it brings me to another point in that I wanted to make in this episode also, which really is about like the urgent versus the important and how frequently in startups that all gets confused together into one thing. And sometimes creating a little bit of urgency, not falsely, but intentionally, Mm -hmm. it can be really useful. Right. And other times when the entire team is already like a a shell because things, (laughs) uh, that's maybe not so great. Right, right. And I wonder out loud about whether you can create urgency together or if urgency always has to happen to you. Mm. Because I do, I like, everyone knows my values at this point. I like the idea of agreeing to be urgent somehow or being collectively aware that like we're going to put ourselves in a pickle on purpose. Yeah. But but there's also another part of me that knows that like even in my own life, my own experiences, I definitely perform more as a procrastinator and as someone with ADD when there's a deadline that isn't my own, mm-hmm. right? Like the speech is due or the thing is happening or even like I said, like the podcast, you're on here waiting for me. Like yep. those things do work for me even against my better kind of principles. So it is, it's a hard balance to strike, I think. Yeah, I, for what it's worth, I do think that's possible. Good. <laughs> that gives me hope. I mean, I just think, and I think that's where operating rhythm stuff comes into play. Yeah, yeah. Is where, you know, you have conversations. You know, we just started a new meeting at the Ready that is basically our first, like, representative meeting, representatives of many circles. I'm very and excited about this one. our very first meeting was, like, about a real-ass problem that I would say... I think I have held more urgency around than other people have. And it's very easy to tell stories about why and like, you know, Mm -hmm. caring and conscientiousness and a bunch of other bullshit. That's just like my own ego working. And also what I have realized is like when we explore that together and I explain the feelings that I'm feeling based on the things that I see that other people don't because of the job that I have that other people don't have. Everybody's like, oh, shit. Here's yep. 10 ideas. Let's fucking yep. go. So yep. it's like, I, you know, I think it's possible. And I also think we um, sometimes don't assume that it is. Right. And forget our vantage point. I mean, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up because I have definitely been a victim of that. And it is, it, you know, everyone sees a different piece of the elephant in the dark. Yeah. And if you are in a position that is very nodal in the network, you get to hold more pieces of the elephant. And that is, you know, that's not because you're special. It's because you have a role that allows that to happen. Yeah. So I think, I mean, you are special, obviously, but Thank that's you. that's not why. But it's not um, why, definitely. Not. The, so I think that's interesting. And I do think it connects back to your point about resources too, because sometimes it's about sense making, like you just said, and, and deciding to, to jump on something. And sometimes it's about just saying, you know, we could go a little faster if we spend a little more and hire a little more and it's going to create urgency because we're going to shorten our runway. Mm -hmm. And is everybody down? Mm -hmm. And if everybody's like, yeah, we're down, let's cut the runway in half and let's go for it. Mm -hmm. Then you've done some resource allocation and you've done some urgency making Mm -hmm. in one conversation, in one agreement. Um, And it's, and it's a shared, it's a real urgency that's external, but it's also created through a shared process. Yeah. Yeah. It's also like getting at, you know, it's getting at what risk really is versus perceived risk. Right. And I always, I always think about this story. When I worked somewhere else, I, I had a partner who I was very, very close with. And he and I were having drinks one night and I, Ed and I were at a point where we were not sure yet if kids were on the table. Okay. And I was telling Kurt this. I don't, I don't. I wonder if Kurt listens to this podcast. He might. I'm going <laughs> to text Kurt. him and ask him. Hi, Kurt. And so I was telling her about this. And like, I think at the time he had like three or four kids already. Oh, <laughs> like my God. Maybe five was on. The, I don't, they have a million children. That's anyway. Awesome. And I was like, I was like, I just, it's so hard. It's such a hard decision to make because you can't go back from it and all of the and I don't really want to but I'm worried about if I don't and you know Mm -hmm. it was a very it was very much a conversation about risk 
And like, what am I going to give up? And what am I going to get? And how can I make that decision without knowing in some way? Because you can't really know. (laughs) It's a one-way door. That thing. But the thing that he said to me was, which was fascinating and sort of ridiculous, but so useful, was that he was like, so what if you have a baby and you end up hating being a mom? And I'm like, yeah, that would be really bad. And he's like, you could put it up for adoption. And I was like, Uh yeah, Uh I could. And he was like, Ronnie, think (laughs) about your situation. There are a million waiting parents in the world who would want your kid. Right. So this isn't really a one-way decision the way you're making it a one-way decision. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, obviously, every part of my being is like, I would never do that. But the point of the thought exercise is we convince ourselves that there is no other alternative when there very much is a viable alternative to discuss or to be open to. And he was like, if that door was open to you, would you want a baby? And I was like, no. And he's like, then you shouldn't have one. There you go. There you go. (laughs) And so it's just like, no matter, you know, if the situation is being insistent with a client or having a child or making a hire, it's like, I think digging into what the, what the real, what the real risk that you can't get back, what is the real unrecoverable option versus what's true is, is a helpful little excavation to go on. I love that idea that it's not, is it a one-way door or a two-way door? It's how much door can you recover? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Exactly. Because it's very rare to really, you know, realistically in life, there's just, I mean, other than death and taxes, there aren't one-way doors, right? Right. It's you buy the company, you can sell it. You you can can divest it. it, You You get divorced. You can get remarried to that person. People do it all the time. Exactly. And they do it again and again. Again and again. I love them. Yeah. So it's like... Yeah. yeah, get and and usually it doesn't even have to get that deep before you before the shovel hits a rock that you're like, well, this is a bullshit reason. <laughs> yeah. So I think doing <sighs> that sort of mining can be really useful. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's go through the door that says. <laughs> let's go through the door that is marked episode end. Um, and that seems like a pretty good place to wrap it up. If you like what you're hearing. A review would mean a lot. Or even better, you can forward the show to your entire address book if you like. That would be fine. And if you liked this year one exploration and you want to hear maybe like a year two or a year five or a year 10, drop us a line. And with that, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced very generously by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com, as many of you have lately. As for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.